Hello, and welcome to A Year with Jesus, where we're learning to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. And this week, we're in Mark chapter 14. You know, Bill, this is kind of a long chapter, but it's actually a really short amount of time. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, like 70-something verses the chapter has, but this is really all kind of happening mostly in one night, a lot of what's being recorded here. Yeah, so as we get into Mark chapter 14, we have major events here, but we want to try to follow a little bit of a thread of following Peter. Mm-hmm. He's right there beside Jesus and, of course, the rest of the 12 apostles. But you're going to see some highs and lows with Peter in this chapter, aren't we? Yeah, probably more lows than anything else in this chapter. But we know that Peter comes out of it, and so I think you see the lows, and, and, and later on we'll see some of the highs. But but the chapter, I think, actually begins with a big low on everybody's part except for Mary. The, the chapters before, we had the chief priests and the scribes. They're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. Well, they're still trying to do that. But now they're trying to do that a little more privately because they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the riot of the people, which later on they'll actually get past that somehow. And he's at Bethany, the house of Simon. There comes a woman, some of the other texts, maybe the Gospel of John and John 12. We can right. probably assume that this is Mary that comes. And she she just takes this, this very costly perfume and she just starts to pour it on him. I'm so impressed with this because this is such a strong act of faith. It shows that she believes everything that Jesus has been saying. We've seen him say multiple times that his time is coming, that when he's in Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over to the chief priest. He's going to be crucified. He's going to raise on the third day. She actually believes he is going to die. And so she comes to anoint him with an extremely expensive, you know, vial. This would be almost like $30,000 worth of perfume for today. This is practically her life savings or like the down payment on a nice house. And she gives it all to Christ because he's worth it. And and again, you think about a few chapters ago, we had the widow who came with the two mites and gives all that she has. Here we have this woman and she gives this costly perfume. And the disciples, they're indignant. And they're indignant because they're like, what? what? And, and notice, by the way, this isn't just Judas. I think we jump and we're like, well, it's just Judas. Right. You know, Judas is being greedy. He is. But they're indignant. Some of them, they're remarking to one another. It's like, this has been wasted. And it's such a shame that that's their mentality, that like at anything, no matter how costly it is, anything, any resource that we have, any time that we have, any talent or ability that we have, that we get to spend on Jesus is not a waste. But they see it as we wait, you wasted all of this because you poured it on Jesus's. And it should be celebrated. And so Jesus even makes the point that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And so we want to have a joyful attitude when we look at what has happened here. And we want to pour our lives out for Christ with joy, knowing that he's worth it. So then we see he's going to emphasize one more time his death as he institutes the Lord's Supper here in their observance of the Passover. Bill, what stands out to you about the way the Passover is observed here? He's very prepared about everything that's happening. He knows. It's, it's almost like miraculous in a sense. Like, look, you're going to go into this room. You're going to tell them the master needs the house. And if you're one of the disciples, just the faith required there to just go and to do what he's asking you to do. And that's what they do. Yeah. And and I love that he doesn't send them alone to go carry this out. He's sent them out two by two in pairs before, and we're trying to emphasize that this year at Embry Hills. And here's another occasion where he sends two of his disciples together, maybe even Peter and John, to go and get this room ready. And this is not the kind of dinner talk that you would, you know, table talk that you would expect. He's letting them know, like, I'm going to be betrayed. And each one of them, they're asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it going to be me? And they don't know who it is. 
And so then he gives them an indication that it's the one that as he reaches his hand in the bowl, that someone else reaches their hand into the bowl at the same time. And he's calling out Judas here. And 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 the the woe that, that comes on Judas here, he says, woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better if he hadn't even been born. You even look, I mean, I think a little bit earlier, we don't, again, the text doesn't give us all of the reasons as to why, you know, why Judas does it, why not. He's greedy though, and he wants money. And it seems like he might've been a little bit upset about the, the money that, that he could have used to really to steal. And he, even going back to verse 10, he goes off to the chief priests and in order to betray them, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And so all for Judas, a lot of this is just a big money grab. It's, a, it's it, yeah, that's what it is for him. And because of that, not only is he, you know, forever remembered as the betrayer, and it's going to ultimately cost him everything, including his soul, but now he's still missing out mm-hmm. on the opportunity to be part of this covenant meal as Jesus breaks the bread and sets the significance of this being his body. And I think it's so fascinating. The chief priests are giving Judas money at this time while Jesus is giving the apostles himself That's amazing. at this time and just kind of seeing, like, what, what are you looking to get? That's right. And what Judas is ultimately doing is that he's making a contract. He's making a covenant with those priests. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm making a covenant with my blood, mm-hmm. right? I'm making a contract, an agreement, a promise, but a family promise that I'm pouring myself out for you sacrificially here. And well, and in this promise, this promise, God was going to keep his end of the bargain, even in spite of, and this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, what we were alluding to, even in spite of some of the failures of the apostles, he lets them know, and I think it's fascinating, as he's instituting this covenant, that you're all going to fall away. He doesn't, by the way, establish the covenant after they fall away and they're restored and all of that and they make things right. Right. It's before. He knows you're going to fall away and he's already established the covenant with them because of the relationship he wants to have with them. And because I think he's trying to show them even grace before the fall. That's good. He's he's working towards building this, right? He's committed to making this relationship work. And I think about verse 26, just that they're sitting there singing a hymn. Mm-hmm. And we know that many of the Psalms would have been sung at the time of Passover. This would not be the first time that they had sung together, but it had to be especially sweet for Jesus yeah. to be surrounded by his closest disciples and to lift up their voices in praise. And I think in some way, fill him up with the spiritual strength that he needs for what's coming next. That's right. And so then then he quotes Zechariah 13 and he says, "Look, I'm going to I'm going to be struck down and you're all going to be scattered." And Peter and this is maybe where the failure. Yes. Jesus is trying to teach them something. He's trying to let them know this is going to happen. I'm going to I mean I'm going to be killed. He's been trying to teach them this for a while now. In Mark chapter 8, we saw him try to say this to them and Peter just has such a hard time grasping this idea. And he says, this is going to happen to me. And Peter says, even if they all fall away, I'm not like them. And I think that that, that's the beginning really of of failure here. You see a failure in Peter's willingness to be taught. You see pride coming in. And whenever that's how we respond, we're, we're just, we're taking that step towards spiritual failure. That's right. Jesus is looking to the future Peter could have been doing that too. Peter could have been saying, well, then Lord, have mercy. Mm-hmm. Have mercy on me and my weakness. Have mercy on me and my feelings. But instead, he's resisting. And I think sometimes we don't even hear it when we do the same thing until we look with some hindsight and go, oh, I was just like Peter in that moment. And so then Peter, dub- I mean, Jesus doubles down. And he says, look, tonight, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're you, Peter, not everybody, you yourself, will deny me three times. And Peter keeps insisting. 
Jesus, and, I just, I'm not going to do that. That won't be me. And in his insistence there, he's setting the wrong example for the other apostles mm-hmm. because they keep insisting the same thing. And now he is this, you know, point man, this leader. He's used his influence to, again, disagree with Christ rather than to acknowledge and submit to the truth of Christ. Yeah. And so the chapter is going to continue. And now keep in mind, this is the guy who says, I'll die with you. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they go to Gethsemane. And he just says, sit until I have prayed. And he takes Peter and James and John. He's distressed. He's troubled. He's praying this prayer because he knows what he's going to go through. Yes, he calls out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And when he finds them sleeping, he doesn't just go and push them all and nudge them awake. He literally addresses Peter. Mm -hmm. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? You think you're going to do all of these things, but look at the weakness here. And of course, Jesus is compassionate. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he also urges Peter, why don't you step up? Why don't you keep watch? Why don't you be praying with me? And how would any of us feel if we were sitting at the hospital? and our spouse or our child was having a very critical surgery and our friends that we had asked just to spend one hour with us, Mm -hmm. if they keep dozing off and falling asleep rather than sit there with us and guide us through this very difficult time. Again, and and you can just imagine, Peter's exhausted though, Philip. I mean, they've, they've had a long day. They had the supper. He had to go get the room ready. Now they're out. It's dark. They're praying. He falls asleep, but Jesus, and this three times, and he comes up and he's like, are you still sleeping and resting? But it's like, all right, now it's time. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. And verse 43, just like Mark has done, immediately, while he was still speaking, and you just imagine the shock on the apostle's face, Judas, one of the 12, came accompanied. And Jesus went to Gethsemane accompanied with Peter, James, and John. Judas will also go to Gethsemane. But he's accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and just two complete different groups here. And just just the divergence in Judas's life is so sad here. And the betrayal is obvious from the moment he comes and gives him a kiss on the cheek. We think about a kiss as a customary greeting there. It was supposed to show closeness. It was Mm -hmm. supposed to show trust. And now he's taken what should have been a very loving and family-oriented greeting and turned it into a deceptive betrayal. And it's a reminder for us, how do we greet people? Do we really treat fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, as family? And is that sincere? Is that genuine? Or is there something else that is in our heart that's taking over some form of idolatry that's breaking that relationship? And so it was shocking for him to come and betray Jesus in this manner, surrounded with people Jesus calls out having swords and clubs as if they were coming to arrest a robber. And now Mark is going to just quickly compact these next few events. We could follow the other gospels and we could say, okay, there's going to be a trial over here. There's going to be a trial over there. He's got to stand before Pilate. He's got to stand before Herod. But Mark is going to say, who is on trial? Mm -hmm. Who is this that Judas has betrayed? This is our savior. And so as Jesus begins to be led away, the disciples scatter. Yeah, and, and even before they scatter, I think you see even another failure of Peter. Like he, and the text doesn't say it's Peter, but we know from other accounts that it is. He tries to cut an ear off. He tries to fight, but not the way that Jesus is going to fight. And I think sometimes we try to go to our own resources, do things our own way in God's kingdom. And that's, that's a failure because we're not adhering to what Jesus wants. But to your point about them scattering, 
You know, a lot of people uh, hypothesize that it that the young man in verse 51 that's following is John Mark. I probably assume that it is as well. But that picture, I think, is so strong that he was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and he pulled free, and he escaped naked. That You think about it, for a Jewish man to be naked would have been a shameful thing. And at this point in time, this young man preferred to flee naked than to stay with Jesus. And just to really show, I think, just like what association with Jesus at this point in time would have looked like, they all flee. And it was very frightening. I know we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, that you can see how afraid the apostles are. Mm -hmm. You can see how afraid Mark would be here. And so as we read this chapter, we're supposed to have an emotional response to what's happening here. This is not just a story. This is a historical event unfolding where they were in real danger, and yet they were with Christ. Mm -hmm. Whatever danger they were in is nothing compared to the spiritual danger of fleeing from Christ. Amen. Amen. And you see Peter in verse 54, he's following, but he's following from a distance. You know, he's right in the courtyard. And I think, again, you see some of that, like where he hasn't completely given up. He's not completely denying Jesus, but now there's a little bit of separation. There's a little bit of distance that's being created. And that's how Peter's responding. And on the other hand, we have Jesus, and they're they're trying to obtain some testimony. They don't have any because there's nothing that they can say that sticks to what Jesus did. There's a lot of false testimonies are being given. Everything's inconsistent. You know, they stand up and they say, well, I heard he said he was going to back to the temple, which we've seen in the last few chapters. He's going to destroy this temple. In three days, he was going to build up another made without hands. And even that was inconsistent. But the high priest gets up, Philip, and this is, we were talking about this. And the high priest gets up and he says, don't you answer? Do you have nothing to say? And then he charges him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And what stands out to you about Jesus's response here? Well, Mark records it as one of the most clear and unmistakable accounts of his good confession. Jesus directly says, I am And if you want to have a little fun this week, go look at multiple English translations. Mm -hmm. Many, many of them begin verse 62, that Jesus said, I am. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And there's no mistaking what he has come to accomplish. He says, you will see the Son of Man, back to a reference from Daniel, Mm -hmm. the Son of Man that the Jews had been promised and were expecting. He'll be sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a clear claim to his divinity and to his appointed role as the Messiah. And to him, I believe also, he is following, he's making God's will come to fruition because we know the witnesses have nothing. You know, and that's, I think that's part of why the high, cre- the high priest, he tears his clothes and he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? Well, they had, they had nothing at first. And so they were trying to latch on to something and then they call it blasphemy. And this is just how sad this scene is. Just, you have to picture where Jesus is here. He's with the chief priest. He's with all these, these, these guys, these soldiers who hate him. They condemn him to be deserving of death. They spit on him. They blindfold him. They beat him with their fist. They say to him, prophesy. They receive, he's receiving slaps on the face. All of this is happening to Jesus. And Peter's in the courtyard below with one of the servant girls. And Peter was just warming himself with everybody else. Right by the fire. Yeah, with every, just kind of like Jesus is going through all of this. And Mark is trying to let you know, while Jesus is going through this cold treatment of everybody, Peter's over there warming himself with, with the enemy, and they just ask him. It's a servant girl, by the right. way. Not, Jesus is getting you know, interrogated by priests. It's a servant girl. Weren't you with, with Jesus of Nazarene? He denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, you know, I don't understand what you're talking about. And then he goes out to the porch. 
a serving girl sees him. Same question. He denies it again. One of the bystanders, you know, same question. Surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. Yep. And then what does he begin to do in verse 71? To curse and to swear. And when you swear like that, it implies that he's taking God's name in vain. Mm-hmm. He's like making oaths, attributing his distance to Je- distance from Jesus to God. And it's just heartbreaking. Maybe um, language, of course, that would not be befitting of a follower of Christ. And he says, I do not know what you're talking about. That's the kind of answers that the Pharisees had been given mm-hmm. whenever they say, oh, Jesus, we just don't know. We aren't so sure about John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Peter now is taking something out of their playbook and using that to try to distance himself from Christ. So this failure upon failure upon failure, he hasn't been learning. And that's something that's so hard for us. We've got to make sure None of us are perfect, but when we fail, that we learn from those failures, mm-hmm. that we see ourselves clearly, that we come back to God. Yeah, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. And now he's saying, I do not know. And I think it's important because Jesus, you know, they ask, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And he says, I am. You shall see the son of man at the right hand of power coming with the, like Jesus's confession of I, I am. I'm not just some man. Right. I am the I am. And here Peter says, I don't know this man. Almost, I believe in part, cutting down the person of Jesus, someone he knew, someone that he confessed to be the son of the living God. I don't know this man that you're talking about. And then immediately the rooster crows and he hears it and he remembers and he is torn. He's devastated about what happens. Yeah. And this is a great picture of godly sorrow Mm -hmm. because there is a genuine sorrow here, but it's a godly sorrow because he goes, wait. What have I done? Mm-hmm. And it's like his eyes are open because maybe his ears are open to yeah. the rooster. Yeah. And he all puts it together and he realizes he's not as strong as he thought he was. He's not as committed as he thought he was. And he's not as clear as he thought he was. You yeah. know, it seemed clear to him to pick up that sword or it seemed clear to him to follow after Christ. But now he's got to really do some soul searching. And it's a great lesson for us to think about how we navigate failures in life. Because That's right. they're going to come, we're going to stumble. We're not any better than the rest of these apostles or Peter here. And I'm really thankful, Bill, that Mark would record these things from the life of Peter. What do you think the value is there? Yeah, I mean, if Mark is receiving some information, you know, from Peter, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it would have been so easy for Peter to just omit all of this. But Peter gives this to us, I think in part so that we would learn from his mistakes. Peter's not trying to to hide his mistakes and hide his past. He's also not glorifying any of this. All of this, especially when you juxtapose it to Jesus, all of this looks especially terrible. But I think there's a lesson for us in that as we try to help people, try to help people who are struggling or who might struggle for us to not try to act like we have lived these perfect lives and look at where we are by our own doings. Peter knew that he was where he was, especially when he thinks back on this moment because of God's grace. And we need to remember the same. Right. So when we see these chapters and we see what God can redeem, if God can redeem it in Peter, God can redeem it in every single one of us. You know, there also seems to be this great emphasis that only an inspired message would record this much shameful content. That's right. Right? That Peter may not have preferred to put this all out there immediately, but God is directing these writers to say what really happened. Mm -hmm. This is the way betrayal took place. This is the way the trials took place. And even when it makes his own disciples look bad, the truth is just the truth. Yeah. And Jesus has been 
trying to get the rest of the residents of the city to come face to face with him as the truth. That's right. And if we would come face to face to see that only Christ is perfect, but he has grace and mercy and this new covenant by his blood, that truth is something that we should embrace readily. And I think there's lessons to learn. You look at Jesus and what we learn about him. I think we learn about what how to handle times of darkness. I mean, you see he is he's singing hymns. You see that he's spending time in prayer, time in like deeply spent in prayer, that he's praying that he would do God's will, that he's considering the word of God. And again, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to have times where we stumble. We're going to have times where we fall. But what you are definitely going to have is times of darkness and times of temptation and times of trial. And I think that Mark 14 stands as like such an important chapter for us to see. This is how Jesus handled it. You know, he's not shirking away from from God. He's not shirking away from his identity in God or anything like that. And I think we we could learn to be more like him. Bill, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing these points out. And thank you, if you've been listening today, following along with us through Mark chapter 14. Again, it's a long chapter, but a short amount of time. This one big evening where everything changes because Jesus was willing to lay his life down. And just like Mark said at the introduction to his gospel, this is Jesus the Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ has confessed that publicly, and it's fitting for each one of us to confess him as we go about the way we live our lives each day. If you want to know more about the podcast, feel free to check out the website embryhills.com slash podcast. Next week, we'll be in Mark chapter 15 and 16.